Please listen carefully. My brain has collapsed into itself. You know? I think our energy right now really bodes well for the next three episodes we're going to record today. (laughs) What's up, sisters? Welcome back to another episode of Everyone and Their Sister. My name is Christina. I'm Natasha. And I'm Stephanie. Thank you guys so much for joining us. You have started in our, the rest of our December content. This is the beginning of the end for the rest of our episodes this year. Um, Just a heads up, today we're going to be talking about the best books of 2020. This can be either things we read in 2020, things that came out in 2020. Each one of us chose sort of a different direction. And next week we'll have our best movies of 2020. The week after that will be our best uh, TV shows of 2020. And then we're going to take a little bit of a break uh, for that sort of week in between Christmas and New Year's Eve. And then we'll be back next year with a Bridgerton review. And I'm teasing that for Steph specifically. (laughs) And everyone listening. We know everyone's excited, not just me. We can't wait, but I wanted to give a little rundown of sort of like what we're going to be talking about today and what the rest of our year is going to look like. Uh, don't freak out when there's not an episode of the 29th. Like, it's fine. We're taking a little a little break. We so, big Thanks to quarantine, we managed to get an episode out every week for the last six months, which is a crowning achievement in my books. <laughs> All right. Before we get into the whole uh, episode for today, what are you guys reading or watching right now? On my plans are to watch two music documentaries. Taylor Swift on Disney Plus and Shawn Mendes on Netflix. I haven't I haven't watched either. Don't know if they're good, but I have high hopes. What am I reading? <laughs> I what I love is that the only reason this question is difficult for Nat is not because like, oh, what is she reading? It's because she's reading nine things at fucking once. Let me let me just take a little look see at what I'm actually reading because it, it actually is a problem. I'm sorry. I'm not that sorry actually. Are you like I'm surprised you haven't been rereading stuff because that's literally all I've been able to do. I honestly tried yeah. and then all these library books came in and I was like I just I like I can't. Like I have to finish them. I have to finish all of them before the time runs out. Some of them I've been waiting for 6 months for. Oof. So like I'm reading them. I do feel like the library app has ruined you slightly because you've got the book hoarding mentality, but then you don't get to keep the book, so you have to read it. And so I feel like that's all you do. You'll be like, oh, I listened to four books today while I worked a full day, baked and made crafts and like all this shit. And I'm like, (laughs) you know, you can just take a break, right? Like, you know, you don't have to finish a book every single day of the year. I get stressed about it. Like I, when letting go of a book from the library app, when I have to let it go and just like, return it and be like no we're done here or like i'll come back to you a few months later it is the most difficult decision of my life like it's hard for me (laughs) and i know like it marks my place so i could come back to it later in like two months or whatever but it's like i go through a crisis (laughs) in that moment when i'm like return but anyway what i'm reading right now (laughs) is the second book in the foundations trilogy by robert something it's called Shorefall. It's really good. Oh, I'm I wanted to read that. Yeah, yeah. It's actually, it's probably one of the only, one of like the handful of white dudes I've read this year. And it's the only one I've really, really enjoyed. So what about you, Christina? Um, I'm actually, so this weekend, I am ready to get fully into the Christmas spirit. Mariah Carey has come to me in my dreams. It is now time for me to burst forth into the Christmas bubble. Uh, so after we finish this recording, I'm going to pull out my Christmas shit, put up my tree, and I'm going to play some janky ass Christmas movies. 
Jingle Jangle is definitely on the list. I recognize that's not a janky Christmas movie. That's like a genuinely good one, I believe. Uh, But immediately following Jingle Jangle, I will absolutely watch things called, these are not actual movies. These are just things I'm guessing. Um, The 12 Dates of Christmas, uh, you know, uh, Christmas Wrapping, uh, (laughs) A Christmas to Love. Christmas Prince Baby, Small Town Christmas. Oh, the princess switched one. So that's going to be me for the next uh, the next month. It will become Christmas Town in this house. And the only thing I will watch is Christmas movies. Excited for you. One thing I'm really intrigued by what Netflix has created is the concept of the Christmas TV show. So an entire oh, series yeah. dedicated to the concept oh, of yeah. Christmas. I heard Dash and Lily is good. Marina told so, me. So yeah, that's really on my list. They started releasing them last year and I actually didn't watch any of them because I was like, no, I like the Hallmark movies. I'll stick with this. But more and more, I'm like, that's a lot of hours to dedicate to one like perfect piece of crap Christmas story that I just like absolutely love. Uh, so I'm excited for this year. I'm going to roll into Dash and Lily. I think they gear more towards good rather than bad. That's my guess. Demand. I disagree. don't know that they do. <laughs> I, when I say that not having, I say not having watched any of them. At least the one I remember from last year. Let it snow. And Wait, then there's another one. That was a movie. Oh. Let It Snow was a movie. There was a one from last year. I wish I could remember the name of, but it's still on Netflix. It was an original. They also have like Merry, Happy, Whatever, which is another Christmas show. Oh, it's yeah. one of those ones where it's probably better than the movie, but also the Netflix Hallmark stuff is slightly better than the Hallmark stuff in general. Mm-hmm. It, outside of maybe uh, Christmas Prince, it's all slightly better. So it's just about like leveling out their qualities all right so let's roll into our best books of 2020 um steph you go first is this a book that you've read or a book that came out this year it came out this year and i read it (laughs) (laughs) i've done both okay this is like a a true struggle for me as we know i don't like to commit to anything um honorable mention is the talia hibbert actor age eve brown which doesn't come out this year but I read an arc of it. So in my heart, that's number one. It's the highest rated book I have on Goodreads at the moment. So the book I'm picking is The Roommate by Rosie Dannon. Uh, this is her debut novel, which, whew, good start. I'm going to say, so I'm going to spoil it for you. Christina, do you care? No. <laughs> okay. I feel like it's kind of a spoiler, but yeah, so if you don't want any spoilers of this book, skip ahead to X XYZ. I don't know what time. Three mm, we'll give me t- we'll give me less than ten minutes. It's obviously a romance book, but it is between Clara, who is a rich aristocratic I'm saying aristocratic as in like twenty first century aristocrat. She comes from money in New York, I believe. Uh and a porn star named Josh Darling. That is his porn star name. Uh and they become roommates. And they fall in love. And this book really surprised me because I was like, how have I not read a book about a porn star before? You read a lot about escorts. You read a lot about like the kiss quotient was an escort. But you never really see someone who's actually in the porn industry. And I was like, why is this the first book I'm reading? I'm sure there's probably other ones that I don't know about. But it was so good. When I first started this book, I actually didn't like it. at yeah. first because you come in from her like weird society point of view and you're like I hate it like I was like I hate everything about this uh, what is even the word for her elite an elite family east coast family kind of like su- succession she's from the family of succession she moves to LA for a guy which again 
I mean, we all have that same like, don't do it, girl. Don't do it. But she did it anyways. Uh, And then she ends up stuck with this roommate named Josh, who she doesn't know. So she's kind of the only person that doesn't know he is a porn star. So her aunt, her literal aunt has to tell her like, oh, yeah, he he's like a really famous porn star. I can't believe you haven't heard of him before. So she goes home. She's on the couch. Number one, girl, you should have been in your bedroom, but the story wouldn't have worked if you were in your bedroom. Opens up her laptop, puts in his name, looks at his videos. Guess who comes home and sees her screen? Josh. <laughs> and she immediately closes in. It's like, oh, sorry. <laughs> Just looking at your work. <laughs> okay, so he has an on and off relationship with his fellow porn star co-star, Naomi. At the point of the movie, movie book, they break up. So he's a free, uh, free agent, as we say. So it's like really interesting to learn the behind the scenes of like porn star industry. I really am interested in like yeah. Rosie and how she did the research for that. Uh, OnlyFans has really exploded, mm-hmm. and like that's only just made me more curious. Of, like, okay, so like, how do you get into this industry? How do you the contracts that they have are very like limited. You can only be with one studio at a time. You can't really the be merchandise conversation. Like, it was like yeah. really fascinating to read about. So I didn't know porn stars. Well, it makes sense if you're popular. Yeah, people are gonna buy your merchandise. You're like sex toys. You're like toys. They're basically like sex influencers. Exactly. Yeah. Hey, that's exactly it. So no wonder you loved it. Christina, you, uh, my brain has exploded into, of course, exactly. <laughs> yes. The secondary plot line is that they're trying to, is that Clara has the money to invest in a company that Josh and his ex-girlfriend slash business partner, Naomi, uh, want to do, which is like a sex positive website where you can go and learn different things. You learn about like casting. They do videos for people. Like, I'm sure this exists in the real world. I just don't know where. <laughs> and I thought it was a great idea um the only thing people said that this book was like extremely sexy and like yes i thought it was but i didn't think it was as hot and bothered as it was sold to me yeah like nothing out of the ordinary for a romance book could have used more there was like a hint a light hint of like a threesome there that never really was talked about i'm like that was a missed opportunity um clearly I think Naomi was attracted because she's bisexual. She was a little bit attracted to Clara. Um, But then just to follow up with this, I also read the second book that comes out next year. And the premise is Naomi and a rabbi, which. (laughs) (laughs) The snort that came out of your mouth. I just didn't. That was I know. I know. Honestly, I it's well done too. <laughs> I yeah, it's sitting in my like my net galley app, and I'm quite excited to read it. Look at what Fleabag did. Honestly, <laughs> on, well, hot rabbi, literally hot rabbi. He's kind of like a Seth Cohen, like truly the nicest man. I I don't want to give anything away, but like, so again, pleasantly surprised by these books. Rosie is typing out truly surprised and i loved it here's what i got a question though at what point are you literally spoiling or giving away anything in a romance book i feel like it's not like a slam against it i think it's totally fine but i like i don't none of this is unexpected like of course this was how she was gonna find out that he was a porn star like of course she was gonna be watching a video and he was gonna walk in like that's exactly what you would i mean expect and want see it coming as you're reading it even i mean like if you read enough romance you know that that's yeah. if you watch enough movies you know it's gonna happen but it's like it's the way you get there and how what she does with it after that you're like okay this is well done like if it were 
there were ways where it could have gone wrong in a romance and i have oh, yeah. seen it done before and it was like interesting to like hear the stick well stigma about like porn stars and stuff i'm like they're they're artists like people are watching their stuff all the time they're making content again content creators unfortunately they're under an umbrella of like a agency or whatever but it's interesting to see that other side of content creation to be again i'm you can tell i'm like fascinated by only fans and the people that put stuff out there there your like obsession with understanding more things about only fans is really funny to me because i love the idea like steph doesn't want her face on the internet but loki is like mm, but the rest of me I put my foot out <laughs> You can charge big money for that. Big money for that foot. I mean, Steph how many McFoot. people can say in, in this day and age that they've never seen a porn video? Like, I don't think anyone can oh, actually yeah. say that. So it's interesting that, again, no one or that I've seen has, like, really had people... Like, the dynamic of, like... So technically, he stops sleeping with women when he's together with her. But, like, what if you were dating someone who was like an active porn star. Like how do you navigate like this person sleeping with someone else, but they're also coming back home to me. Like that is really interesting. I hope she kind of talks about that in a later book. Like I would love to see how someone navigates that. I would definitely also be interested in that. Something that navigated the idea of like, you don't quit your job just because you started dating somebody. Like that's fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. How long, how long can someone be in this industry for before they don't want to do it anymore? They're considered old, especially for women. Basically, this book really surprised me. It made me think about a lot of things that I haven't really put too much thought into. Only fans, hello. Um, yeah, <laughs> I, I put this at a four. I think I should give it a five. I'm looking at my Goodreads right now. That's it. That's all I got to say. I went over our limit, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Nat, what was your best book of the year? So my best book. Okay, this is really hard because I had a really good year in books. You guys know this. Um, I was a lot more intentional in what I read this year because I've been carefully tracking what I've been reading, specifically how many BIPOC and queer authors I was reading. It made it easier for me to distance myself from those white male authors. Um, Probably only read like maybe a handful of them this year compared to what uh, I normally would have read if I compared to last year. So because of like the way I was intentionally reading, I decided to choose something very intentional for this pick, even though we know we know some of my favorite picks are probably more likely like Addie LaRue and some other things. But I decided to go with um, Cast the Origins of Our Discontents by Isabel Wilkerson. Um It is an Oprah book club pick as well, and I thought this is probably one of the better Oprah picks I've read because I don't really love all the books that she tends to pick. Like, she picked American Dirt, so, like, questionable, (laughs) sometimes questionable. But if you haven't heard about Cass already, it's kind of everywhere right now. It came out, I think, this fall or something like that. Um, Cast is a nonfiction book about America's unspoken caste system, which is obviously based on the idea behind the caste system in India. So if you don't already know what that caste system is, it's basically a system of dividing society by classes. So, but classes would be a bit more of like a socio-economical basic versions of like middle class, upper class, and it's based on the wealth gap. But in this book, it's specifically looking at America adopting something similar to the deeper caste system of India, which is hereditary. So it makes it nearly impossible to surpass your caste slash, I'm using air quotes here, class that you're born into, despite your occupation or wealth. Um, And obviously, in this case, it's based on race. 
So race is that caste system that she's talking about. Um, honestly, this book was like geniusly written. I I don't know why I didn't think it would be written really well. I just I was just like I read if if anybody else this year has been reading a lot of anti-racist nonfiction this year, you know that like everything kind of read the same way and I don't know if anybody else feels that way feel free to jump in about it or like correct me about it but like it everything kind of felt very basic and it felt like like on a scale of discovering we're not living in a post-racial world and like a decolonized mindset most of those books felt like they were educating the lower end of that scale and so when I was reading a lot of the anti-racist books I just felt like I wasn't gaining or gleaning anything new from the writing but cast completely blew it out of the water for me. I, while I was reading this, I had to put this book down like four or five times because it was, it was a hard read, but it was also like, you really had to digest some of the topics she was talking about, because even though it seemed obvious, the comparisons she was making were incredible. Um, she has like the perfect example of the caste system at work in America. So she has like a good balance as well. So you're not just getting like hard facts blown at you throughout the whole book it's not like reading a textbook she gives you like actual stories about people she gives stories about herself she gives stories about satchel page the baseball player um she gives stories about specific nazi stories she gives stories about anonymous white people in america like things that have come up in the historical record but she doesn't like name anybody obviously um martin luther king jr and she even has stories about albert einstein like it's she weaves in like real life stories into this book that makes it so she even talks about her plumber so it's like (laughs) there's like there's so many little things in this in this book that make it even more compelling as you're reading and so because this whole book is about that i'm not gonna like get into like the crazy details of it but she there's a huge point that she makes in this book that I have had a hard time splitting away from like it's like changed how I look at America I guess like North America in general and she talks about how what America did to black people is worse than what Nazi Germany did to Jews and it is a huge like it's a huge thing to say in a book um because you think about it she's not actually wrong because if you think about it what Nazi Germany did was over a shorter period of time yes it was genocide but if you look at what America's doing it's been happening for over 400 years and it's continually still happening so when you add all that up it's almost like it is worse it is so much worse it's it's infected the system that we live in um, but to not, I don't want to spoil too many things for the book, but I'm just going to talk about three huge points that really stuck out to me and very disturbing. I'm not going to talk about, I'm going to give a little content warning, but I'm not going to talk about details of them. Before you get into it a little bit, I think one really important note to that with regards to like even that point is I think it's really easy to forget or for so many people, particularly white people to not realize that like, we're still in the middle of a genocide of indigenous and black Absolutely. people. Like it's an ongoing thing that's been happening for hundreds of years. Like it's still happening. So I think it's fair to describe something as worse because yeah. at least, you know, a country might be trying to make up to a certain extent for some of those things. Whereas America mm-hmm. still won't admit that it's in the middle of happening and so Canada as well. Yeah. And, and the thing is the way she words it is she doesn't, she doesn't shy away from saying genocide. It is genocide. It absolutely is. Use the words that you actually mean. She goes in on America so hard <laughs> that I was just like, oh, Isabel, love you. Is she American? She is American, yes. Okay. 
Um, okay, so the three points that I want to talk about. Content warning, I'm not going to go into the details of them because it's too disturbing to actually talk about and I'd rather not do that with a, like I could never do it with a straight face. Um, but the first one that was really interesting was that in the years leading up to the Third Reich, American eugenicists books were actually bestsellers in Germany. I had no idea about this, by the way. This was completely news to me. So obviously Nazis didn't need anyone to teach them hate because they already did very much hate. But what they did do was they actually sent researchers to America leading up to the Third Reich to learn how white people subjugated black people in American laws. Yeah. And that's fucking crazy. And these are laws that are still in place, by the way, today. And the Nazis basically took that research, applied it back in Germany, but it wasn't as lasting and permanent as we know. And even some of the laws that she was saying that they used to like round up Jews or like to to describe what a Jew is wasn't as drastic as the way America discussed Black people. And it was, it, it's actually like disgusting the way she lays it out. It's so disturbing to think about it that way that the fact that even Germany was like, oh yeah, America does hate, right? <laughs> so like it's the second the second big thing was um in her research she was actually researching how Germany has been attempting to reconcile their history, which is important to think about because specifically she talks about how Europe doesn't have statues that celebrate people who made society worse. <laughs> they they never they, if there were any, they definitely took them down and they never stayed up longer than the Third Reich was in power. And so uh, she talks about how the Union, even though they won, quickly became apologists towards their Southern opposition and pardoned every single one of them. What? Every single one of them got pardoned. In fact, they got celebrated, even though they lost and they stood for the worst people in society. They got streets named after them. They had buildings named after them. How many Robert E. Lee high schools are there? There's a lot. <laughs> it's stupid. And like there's there's um, statues. And she says they erected these statues of these people that were oppressing others. And it continued. Even just having the statue up was almost another form of oppression. It was like, hey, these people that were oppressing you before are still doing it in the form of this symbolic gesture. Like, what the fuck? Nobody does that. Who celebrates that? Only America. Well, not only America. We know that. There's some other parts of the world. Did, she, have, but... did she talk about, like, because um, I know this came out in August. Did she talk about, like, people taking down statues, like, in June and July? Yeah, she did. She did discuss it and how, um, actually, oh, she did discuss a very specific story, which I found completely fascinating. So there was a statue in new orleans i believe and the city voted to take it down even though it was like a really tight vote um but every time a company a construction company tried to take it down their families were attacked by white what? supremacists they were attacked at the thing they couldn't take it down it took them like over two years until finally a black owned construction company agreed to take it down with police protection provided they all had to dress up so that their faces were covered so nobody could identify who they were people kept having like drone cam like white supremacists kept sending drone cameras in to like spy on them to try to figure out where they lived to figure out their families threaten their families like it was fucked up when they finally took it down it took so much work just to take down that one statue how much money from the city had that cost at that point like you're you're paying for police protection you're paying for all these like security measures they had to pay like i think she said like three times more than they initially would have to that construction company that's insane to me 
it was just like oh i have chills even thinking about it it's just like the most disturbing and she got like really deep into the research and the stories were so compelling exactly like that one um i guess like the final thing (laughs) i will point out that really stuck out to me from this book there was a passage about some postcards i'm not going to talk about them but i'll just say when you get to it because you absolutely should be reading this book you're gonna need to take a four-day break like i did like it was that disturbing to me the way she talks about some postcards um that still exist in circulation by the way she was able to find it in the historical record she was able to look at them and i don't think anybody anybody should have to it was very depressing but this book was beautifully written despite all of that um the way she went in on the u.s I would argue that she could have probably gone in harder. She did go fairly hard. And the fact that this is a book that people are actually reading and picking up, I think is really important. I, out of all of the anti-racist type of books that I've read, this is 100% the best one I've read so far. I don't think somebody would have to top this by a lot. This is the only one that I gleaned new information from. She went and drew, like, she's been doing years of research on this. This is like, she joined like this, like, she like did her research with a bunch of like South Asian communities. Like she went to their, like, they have like talks about caste system and stuff like that. And so she like went there, she got, she's part of that community now. And like, she's, she's done years of research on this. So you can tell the conclusions that she draws. Um, they're, they're real. Like there's no way you, there's no way you can gaslight this woman about what she's saying is like, she's solid. Like everything is well done in this book. Um, People will still try. People will still try for sure. I do think she weaves in the, so the subtitle, the the discontents of our, the origins of our discontents, she weaves that title in so beautifully in some of her passages, guys. Oh, like it's like, it's a play on words. So it's like, it's so well done. <laughs> so not only is she like well-researched, she writes so well as well. Um, I didn't know that she'd won a Pulitzer. Uh, uh, God. Pulitzer? 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 <laughs> I just like <laughs> any words. I'm like, no, it's done. Um, but I hadn't known she won a Pulitzer for her last book. So I might, I'm probably going to read that one too. I will say, cause yeah, this year there were just so many white people discovering racism for the first time. Yeah. So a lot of the books that were going around were very like white fragility, white rage, very like basic intro stuff where the audience was very much white people mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. like, Hey, white people who have never considered that it's hard for other people to live in their lives before. Um, But I will say a couple of books that I I read this year that I think are also worth mentioning as like excellent ones, particularly because I feel like the audience is not white people um, is thick and other essays by Tressie Mm -hmm. uh, McMillan cotton. I think that was excellent. And I really want to shout out hood feminism by Mickey Kendall. Oh yeah. That's a good one. I didn't, yeah, I didn't see that one get as much attention this year and I thought it really should have. Um, Thick is interesting. It it did. It was sold out everywhere. (laughs) Okay, I mean, in terms of, again, where the number one book was fucking White Fragility, and, like, there's a significant better one. Also, there's no shade. I feel like when Hood Feminism came out, I can see it not having the number of items in stock it should have. Oh, Like, that strikes me as a book. It was not printed as much as it should have been. Yeah. Bullshit. Yeah, so that one is is really good. So I recommend those two quite a bit as well. Um, 
but I, I really want to read Cass. That's on my list. I wonder if they I, pushed up her publication date because yeah, like it definitely felt like it was like years in the running, but there was a lot of relevant stuff from yeah. this year. So like she talks about the pandemic in it. So like it's up to date. That's a close editing. Yeah. Time to it's very well done, and like it's not like it doesn't feel rushed when you're reading it. Um, I would say this book is probably better if you are already on your journey to decolonize your mind. I think this is a great book if you're just starting out might be a little <laughs> little too much <laughs> because it is a lot of information um i did give a rating for this book 10 pulitzers out of 10 helpful plumbers all right christina your time has come <laughs> so this is an interesting year because this year an nk jemison book came out and it wasn't technically my best book of the year. I have to say, and this hurt me. I don't use Goodreads anymore, but I do still vote in the Goodreads end of year thing because there are, I just want to do my little part for those authors. Okay. I want to vote for Cemetery Boys. Um, and I have to say, when I was voting in the the fantasy section, The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue was definitely my best book of the year for sure. But since we already talked about the that. The best of the year, Really? For you, that that book genuinely, I loved it. It was beautiful. It the story was amazing. Like when Nat talked about it, I was very interested. Yeah. And then when I read it, I was like, oh, this is even better than I thought it was going to be because it just for me that book, and I'll say for myself, like at my personal preferences, encompasses just the right amount of a fantastical element where it's not like a heavy fantasy book, but there is an element of magical realism or or something to that extent that for me really works where it almost feels like speculative fiction in a way and I again I just thought that book was beautiful I thought V.E. Schwab did a great job I'm gonna go back and keep trying her other books because of how much I like this one but we picked this book already Nat talked about it she gave a rundown I'm delighted so what, works, mm-hmm. what works out really great there is it means I can still talk about my N.K. Jemison book because that comes in as my favorite book of the year if it's not Invisible Life of Addie LaRue um so as long as i get a chance to talk about nora i'm happy <laughs> yeah nora i call her we're on a first name basis now i call her nora because i follow her twitter and other people use it and i'm like i love that because calling her nk constantly does feel odd or i'll use her full name i'm like you need to throw respect okay it's nk jemison fucking macarthur genius grant uh winner thank you very much or receiver i don't know what you would call that <laughs> The City We Became came out so much earlier this year. This is a read from back in like February. I think it came out in March. Um, And I love this book so much. So the plot of this series, because it is going to be, I believe, a trilogy, is that cities, after they've been around for long enough and after enough of a mythos and a legend has been built around the city, it can literally become alive. And it people who live in that city will become avatars or representatives of that city and its feeling of life. Like this feel, the city has emotions and powers and all these different things. And New York is one of the next cities that is, that is about to become alive. And it's the first city in quite some time to do so. And they need to make sure that it's coming alive is successful because some of the last cities that tried to come alive ended up not, not making it all the way. Like there's things that need to happen in order for a city to truly like reach its potential and reach its life. And they need that to happen for New York. And the way that it works with New York is because there's different boroughs, each borough has its own representative sort of. So each person that is currently in that borough 
takes on the feelings and the emotions and the representation of that borough in like a fantastical kind of way. So they'll sometimes have powers that represent themselves, but they'll also be like the perfect representative of what it means to live in that borough and to be there. Like one of the ones that I think is really interesting is Manhattan is somebody who like just got off of like just got off the fucking train from a small town and is moving to Manhattan to the big city for the first time. His name is Manny. Manny. Um, and he he comes in and then the moment he steps into New York and he becomes Ajar, he forgets his old life entirely. He's got a very Wall Street slash slash entirely ethnically ambiguous vibe. Like he perfectly represents what someone in Manhattan is and like why they come here. And she does that for Brooklyn, for Queens, is like a 25-year-old Tamil immigrant who's like a mathematical student. Um, Staten Island is included as well. It's the only white person. Uh, And she is a like Irish, her family is like an Irish immigrant. They live on Staten Island, very Republican. Again, like the only white people. And her life is very interesting the way it sets up. So N.K. Jemison sets it up so each borough has its own representative. And then there's a single avatar that represents the whole city. There's one person that is like, this is the entirety of New York as it is. And this story is based off a short story that she wrote a really long time ago for her book. Um, what uh, What about, when is it going to be uh, Black Future Month? Um, she wrote this short story about a like an artist and like a hunts- hustler, like a sort of rent boy kind of idea. Um, of a queer black homeless youth who becomes the embodiment of what it means to be New York. And that's sort of the main premise. And in giving birth to the city, that sort of main character ends up in trouble. And all the other people that become the avatars need to find them and need to protect them and need to like lift them up so that they can truly become the avatar that represents New York. And so it's very... In some ways, it's very traditional fantasy in that there's like a quest, like all of these people need to find each other and they're all going on a journey together to find the avatar who is New York. And there's representations of other people who have become cities, like there's a person who became Sao Paulo, a person that became Hong Kong, and they end up coming to try to like help New York because while all of this is going down, there is another ambiguous white racial um, enemy that is trying to keep New York from becoming alive. And everything is just playing off of each other in this way of like, again, very traditional fantasy. It reads like a movie. Like the whole time I was reading it, I was like, I can already see the miniseries. This whole book is season one where each episode is about a different person. And then the last five episodes are them all coming together and trying to like defeat everything. And it just, it was, uh, as someone who loves cities and who loves a love letter to a city, this worked for me in a million different ways. Like everything that she was writing about made me enjoy, like made me enjoy reading it because I got it. Her representations of New York are amazing. It's N.K. Jemison, so it's incredibly diverse. There's a huge spectrum of people being represented and they're represented in ways where it's like, this is just what you want from a book. You want full characters who have their own life and their own backstory and they don't all look the same and I think that's amazing about her books everyone feels so incredibly distinct 
And them, I do think them being Burroughs helps though, because it is like, that's the Brooklyn personality. Like 1000% that checks out. That's Queens. Staten Island, mm, we just don't even, we don't even want it to be a part of New York anymore. Just break it off. Um, so it was really, it was really good. It was really interesting. I'm really, ex- the reason I think this book doesn't top for me and why Addie LaRue probably gets a number one is this is clearly something experimental for her. I think it's very different from her other writing. And it's clearly, again, the start of a trilogy. There is so much more to come. And I have this inkling. I have this little nugget of a feeling of an idea that this one was so, not not cliche is not the right word, but this followed so many specific fantasy tropes that are very in line with what you would expect in a kind of story like this, in a kind of urban fantasy, that I have a feeling that something is lying in wait for this series. There is something that in book two or book three, I'm going to be reading through it and I'm, NK Gems is going to fucking ruin me. She's going to do something and I'm going to be on the floor with this book being like, I'm dead now. I'll never recover. Uh, and I can't wait for that moment. I just have a sneaking suspicion that this book, as simple as it was, all things considered, is the setup for something that is going to be truly truly excellent but that would also be typical for her writing because she does do that she waits until like second book in at the end you're like what the fuck <laughs> yeah that's exactly what i expect from her. and it was one of those things where like she just brings me such joy Where like even if this sort of keeps on track with what it is right now and it never turns into that like holy shit moment i'm still just enjoying it i just love her writing i love what it does for me like it's absolutely also on a personal level in addition to her being incredibly talented that it just speaks to me and I feel like as somebody who watches shit like Hallmark Christmas movies I'm so sick of or not sick of but I I end up a lot of things love small towns and that's fine if you love a small town love a small town uh but I do love a love letter to a big city a lot and in the middle of quarantine with people abandoning big cities uh, it is very nice to remember why people love them because I still love them. Like a city will always be it for me. So I do appreciate that she was like, I'm going to write a love letter, not just to New York, but to the concept of a city and what it means to have so many people from so many different places make up something and what it is to have that kind of life and culture. And I just, oh, I loved it. It's a great book. I do think I do think this book might have been easier to read than all of her previous books. I'm just putting that out. There. Um, okay. It's definitely one of her more accessible titles. I think again because it's very it's very modern, obviously, so there's not like fantasy stuff where you're trying to pronounce a bunch of shit you can't. I totally get what some people are saying. Her her first chapter in this book is the short story that inspired it, and I think it's a jarring way to start it. I liked it because I knew the short story. So I felt like I understood everything as I was reading it. I know a lot of people felt like it wasn't, it was very confusing and it was a very weird way to start a book. So I can understand that for sure. Um, But also this is one of those books where whenever you're reading a review about it, that's negative. You got to be real careful about who you're reading it from. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of people are annoyed that in everyone that represents New York, only one of them is white and the white person is super fucking racist and a little bit evil. And it's like, that's the way, like, there's literally a plague. There's literally a plague taking over New York. And that plague is using racism as a way to spread itself, essentially. Because white people are more susceptible to being brainwashed. Yeah. 
of 100% MLMs, hello, cults. Really <laughs> appropriate book right before the pandemic started. Or yeah. Like, yeah, I was just like, oh, dang, okay. Yeah, it hit at the right time. It wasn't quite as on the nose as songs from the end of the world, but it was there. <laughs> yeah. So I really recommend. It's it's At the moment, it's not my favorite N.K. Jemisin. It, that will always be for Inheritance Trilogy for sure. But again, I can just... At one point, she's going to introduce another city. We're going to get to see more. Like, I can feel it, and I'm I'm excited. I'm here for it. And that's my best of. So before we wrap up this episode, we've done our best of. As a reminder, mine was The City We Became by N.K. Jemisin. Mine was Cast by Isabel Wilkerson. Mine was The Roommate by Rosie... <laughs> Danon? Danon? <laughs> Sorry. Now that we've talked about the good, let's take a quick moment, a little a little five-minute thing, and let's talk about, just very quickly, what was some of the absolute garbage trash that we read this year? <laughs> trash is in, like, I enjoyed it. <laughs> no, no, it was bad. In... Trash is in regrets. <sighs> dig, dig into your negative rating stuff, because we know you don't rate anything higher than a three sometimes anyway. She, I was going to say, sometimes she likes something and it's a three, so it's hard to say. Just because this year was a really, like, a nostalgia i'm going back to the classics i decided to pick up the new cassandra claire here's the thing i was told it was like light and fluffy but here's the thing when you have characters from two series that are related to each other i cannot focus because i need to know who's related to who and how i cannot like i need a family tree that's accurate i need a family tree for the years that are missing i cannot focus on the story when i don't know how this person exists like who are your parents what's happening and like the and the reason i picked it up is because people were complaining that there's too many gay characters or like lgbtq they're like it's not accurate i'm like excuse me did gay people just all of a sudden start existing in the 21st century no bullshit so i was like i'm gonna go read it yeah a lot of great characters but again cannot focus because i don't understand how they're connected. and it pisses me off that i don't know it kills me with this because there's so many genuine legitimate reasons to complain about a Cassandra Clare novel. There's a lot of things she does wrong. But Cassandra Clare does occasionally a couple of things right. And you're complaining about one of the few things that she does right, even if a little bit, it kind of is pandering because she knows that that's what sells. I see that your Magnus and Alec book only came out after the show made them wildly incredibly popular by making them much better people. I see you, Cassie. It's true. I have lots of feelings about this. I like it almost makes me want to like revenge like something just to be like no no none of these reviews that's why that's yeah. why I came in coming in, I'm like I'm coming in hot because I cannot deal with this bullshit you were activated it's activated and now like j- yes we need to see this kind of like representation and I and like yeah she has a big audience so I like that she does this because it's, I think it's important that like other people get chances when they're like this is also popular do you know what I'm saying but again, give me a fucking fan. Like, I know it's supposed to be a surprise because I'm in the in the story of the family tree. But like, maybe, maybe focus on another family <laughs> that isn't the same three. Her- her Fairchild are related now, right? Fairchild, Herondale, and uh, Lightwood. But again, color. I cannot focus. Every five seconds, I was looking at the family tree, and being like, okay, who the fuck is this? <laughs> who 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 are your brothers? Who are your sisters? Who are you in love with? Why is this a secret? How did we get to where we are in present days? So I give it a two out of five. <laughs> Will I pick up the next one? Perhaps, honestly. I just I'm Steph's a rating system. I, I don't understand. So, I yeah, never I like get it. Two absolute trash. <laughs> absolute <laughs> trash, but I'll still read the sequel. What is two. the one? Two. I'm mad. Two. I'm mad, but I finished it and like I skimmed it. 
One is I couldn't even pretend to skim it slash finish, or I finished it and I hated it with the fire of a thousand suns. That worst book of the year. Worst book of the year. Uh, this is again hard because I read only really good books, but I did pick up this one that was sent to me through NetGalley called Docile by KM Spara. It's S Z P A R A Zabara. Anyway. <laughs> Um, it was touted to me as a queer author writing science fiction, and that's all I was told. I did not read a single description. I went in. The tagline for this book is, there is no consent under capitalism. This book is wildly inappropriate. Like, it's, there's sex, there's romance, there's all of that, but it's all done under the guise of, oh, you owe a debt, we will make you a sex slave. That's the whole story. (laughs) And, like, they're trying to be like, oh, we can make this okay. No. No. (laughs) It's it's wild. And he has another book out this year, I believe. And uh, apparently it's possibly just as bad. And I'm kind of curious. (laughs) So I thought thought this was so funny because you were talking about you were picking this. And I was like, oh, let me look this up. And literally, when you read the description, the first two paragraphs are, like, a heavy science fiction dystopian world where having debt means that you belong to somebody essentially and you become a docile for them and then the rest of it follows the romance trope format of introducing the background Mm -hmm. of one person then introducing the background of the second and then introducing the premise of them meeting each other and i was like no 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 is this a is this a romance or is this a heavy sci-fi wild and it's like it's still very sci-fi because like the whole debt system is very sci-fi like you pay a certain amount of debt if you do certain things and it covers a certain amount of years and that's your debt like it's a whole thing they do he does a really good job of explaining the system but then you're in the system and you're like what and like there is some like political talk in there but at the end it's still a romance and you're like what it it blew my mind. I will say that the sex scenes are wild. Like, when I say wild, I mean, like, actually wild. Not the roommate wild. I mean, wild. You know what this is, Matt? This is a webtoon, but just as a book. Yes. <laughs> I didn't even know what a webtoon was. But, like, the naughty webtoon. I didn't know what a webtoon was. <laughs> just for context y'all Steph said literally the most endearing question I've ever heard in my life yesterday which was where do I watch a webtoon I loved it is it not a video is it just a comic it's a comic (laughs) I had no idea Uh, I was like what uh, it's I do recommend the one that I suggested last night this is outside of the thing but the one I suggested it's really good you should read it all right Christina what is your most hated the way this took two seconds to fucking pick okay so I for a little little tiny little bit of background I'm in two book clubs I'm in the book club I run with you guys and a couple of our friends and I'm in another book club with another friend I love this friend I love this book club but the first fucking book that I read for this book club was The Glass Hotel and I almost never joined another book club with them again because wow this book was fucking garbage okay Emily St. John Mandel who I wrote another book that I know people absolutely love. And so this book came out and they were like, this one's got to be great because the other one was great. The Glass Hotel is a piece of shit garbage. (laughs) Okay. The fact that it's an award winner, the fact that it was shortlisted for the Giller Prize, thank God somebody in the last moment had a little bit of sense and gave that prize to How to Pronounce Knife because this book should never have gotten that far. I don't even, 
here's what it's about. It's about nothing. It's about absolutely fucking nothing. It's definitely one of those books where it's like no plot, just vibes, except the vibes are terrible. Okay. The book is so boring. The characters are infinitely boring. The hotel is on a little Canadian island where rich people go to spend a weekend. And it's about random things where like the first chapter is about this UFT student who got a job at the hotel to earn some money while he has an addiction. Uh, and his sister works at the hotel. So he thought he'd go join her there. And then she ends up running away to live an anonymous life on a cruise ship and he steals some of her stuff to use in his music and he becomes super famous for it. So it haunts him for the rest of his life. And also randomly, there's an entire Ponzi scheme in the middle of the book, which should have been the point of the book because then chapters follow like a woman who was a mistress for one of the dudes in the Ponzi scheme. And it, it follows some of the people who worked on wall street who created the sections for sort of the like scheme and what was going on and and that's just the middle of the book that's not the beginning or the end it's just a thing that's in the middle and it's like this is the only part of the book that's a thing and why would you just have it randomly be here with characters we haven't met before and then the book ends in the dumbest way possible and then maybe there's a super natural element maybe there's not i'm not gonna lie to you you literally the last chapter you follow around a ghost what is the point this book sucked. I hate everything you just said. Yeah, this is how terrible this book is. The whole big mystery of the book is that in the first chapter, someone vandalizes the glass windows of the hotel. And literally, oh my God, they treat this, they treat this like it's the it's a hate crime. Okay? They see the writing on this window and people are this somebody dies. Like they're like I can't believe I've seen this. The wording was why don't you go eat glass? It, that's not I've seen worse things written on the bathroom wall at an Indigo. Like why <laughs> why did this overwhelm these people so much? And then the mystery that's underlying the whole book is who wrote that? But you kind of know immediately who wrote it. And the end of the book just confirms that that's the person who wrote it. But also who gives a fuck? It's not that big of a deal. Uh, the way, and I mean, you guys know this, the way I hate finished this book because it was for a book club. And I was like, I made a commitment. And I want to know how to hate. I want to know the level to which I need to hate this. And at the end of the day, I am glad I finished it because now I know for sure. Like I have this information. I'm like, this is what happened. This is what we know now. It was, it was absolutely brutal. It, the, the, the vibes were simply terrible. So if you haven't read it, don't <laughs> go read station 11, right? That was our other book. Yeah. That was my absolute piece of shit book of the year. I'm glad that I had other good things this year because there were actually quite a few like decent books in the arsenal mm -hmm. this year. This one was easily the worst. What a journey we've been on. Oh, the highs and the lows, guys. Can you believe this was all this year? This year was such a weird year to pick things for, too, though, because it was like, what was this year? Like, what happened this year versus 2019? Because in a weird way, they all blended together because some things that happened in 2019, you're like, that was that long ago. But then some things that happened in 2020 feel like they were 10,000 years ago. And, and on that note, that was our best books of 2020. I hope you tune in for our, our episode next week, which is going to be an interesting one. Best movies of 2020, where we'll be ranking uh, the five movies that came out this year <laughs> and just trying to figure out which one of them were good. <laughs>
Uh, thank you guys so much for listening. As always, you can find us on Twitter and on Instagram at EatsCast or on Pinterest at Everyone and Their Sister Pod. Check us out. What was your best book of 2020? If you have a contradictory feeling about any of our worst books, particularly Glass Hotel, I actually don't care. Do not follow us. Do not come to our Twitter. Don't tell me about it. Keep your terrible opinions to yourself. Unsubscribe. I don't even want your listen. And let me tell you something. We need those listens. So I need you to know that's how strongly I feel about this. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much, guys. Yeah, <laughs> bye. <laughs> I kind of, I'm hungry. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>